This episode of In Good Company is brought to you by Amaka, a new digital platform that spotlights incredible stories about women from Africa and the diaspora. Dedicated to breaking new ground, Amaka was born out of the necessity to diversify our media landscape, and they'll be doing exactly that as part of their virtual summit happening next month called Our World Festival. Our World Festival is a three-day interactive virtual conference celebrating Pan-African womanhood running from May the 2nd until May the 4th. This free conference, yes, you heard that right, free, will feature nine different events and over 20 speakers, with immersive sessions exploring economic empowerment, wellness, cooking, travel, mental and sexual health, and much, much more. Attendees can look forward to sessions including Sunday morning yoga, an Ethiopian cooking demo, and panel discussions with industry experts including Ohlone, Leela Tumbe of Spirited Pursuit, Neka J, Susan Oludele, who was the hairstylist behind Beyonce's iconic braids in her Lemonade era, Aaliyah Moreau, and many, many more. To get your tickets, register now at amaka.studio forward slash experiential. That's amaka.studio forward slash experiential. And don't forget to follow Amaka on Instagram at amaka.studio. Thank you very much to Amaka. Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Otega Uagba, in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. On today's show, I'm in conversation with academic, activist, broadcaster and SOAS University teaching fellow Emma Dabbery as we talk about her latest book, What White People Can Do Next, From Allyship to Coalition. Written in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder last year and the subsequent conversations on racism and anti-racism that followed it, What White People Can Do Next is a simultaneously radical and practical essay aimed at changing the way we talk about racial injustice and featuring some incredibly nuanced and thoroughly original analyses of race, class and capitalism. It examines several concepts that gained a lot of traction last summer, such as allyship and privilege, even the concept of race itself, but through a very different lens to the prevailing narrative. And I think it will be an illuminating read, both for people who are completely new to these conversations and for those who already consider themselves to be pretty familiar with them. I personally found Emma's essay so interesting, as while there's a lot of overlap between our thoughts on race and anti-racism and allyship, there are also a few things that we disagree on in terms of what's required from white people to end racism and how plausible those outcomes are, which I think if you've read both my essay, Whites, and Emma's essay, What White People Can Do Next, will be pretty clear to you. But this was a book that really made me think and one I know I'll return to time and time again. I highly recommend you pick up a copy and to whet your appetite. Here's a short clip from the audiobook which Emma narrates herself, in which she shares her thoughts on the concept of allyship. Enjoy. Honestly, the word ally itself jarred with me. I didn't. I still don't like it. The power dynamic it reproduces makes me feel icky, and I've seen way too many guides talking about the ally and the victim. In short, I find a lot of the discourse patronising, both on a personal level and with regard to the prospective ally. It is not a world-making practice. Indeed, I see a historic opportunity 
to reconfigure attitudes and reignite imaginations being squandered by an anti-racist narrative that inadvertently reinforces much of what it claims to want to overcome and that in many ways alienates people who might otherwise be persuaded. One of the things that allyship fails to address is the fact that you can continue to view black people as inferior while still being committed to their protection. When I remembered that many of the 19th century anti-slavery abolitionists were themselves racists who held deep-seated beliefs about black inferiority, I felt even more uncomfortable with the whole ally movement, where the abolitionists differed most from the racist slaveholders was in their response to how racial inferiors should be treated. On the belief in inferiority itself, they were often in agreement. Something that really strikes me, I think the very first line actually of the introduction, you say, over the years, I have had countless people ask me for advice on allyship, but until relatively recently, I declined. But at the same time, this book is very much, you know, a practical guide. And it's called what, Why People Can Do Next. It's not necessarily allyship, as you then go on to explain. It's more aimed at the deconstruction of racial categories and racism itself, but to me, it still seems to be kind of serving, I guess, that purpose that a lot of the allyship literature is about. So I'm just really curious as to what changed for you. What changed for me was the mainstreaming of the conversation about race and racism. My PhD is looking at the construction of racial categories. And while that's what my PhD work is on, what I teach and what a lot of my more public-facing work has been. So I teach African studies, and a lot of my kind of yeah, personal interest, as well as research interest, has been on Black African diaspora forms of cultural production and consciousness and thought, rather than the kind of mechanics of race, which is what my PhD looks more at. But when I saw these conversations about race and racism becoming like mainstream, basically, and yet seemingly like untethered from the theory about processes of how racialization occurs, which are completely necessary to understanding what race is and how we might go about disassembling it. When I saw all of these conversations happening, but that all kind of being absent, I actually felt compelled to bring what I knew about that more to the public for. I find the current anti-racist framework, which is liberal, which is based in kind of like the concepts of liberalism, which frames anti-racism in a particular way and race in a particular way. That is like the dominant way now of thinking about race and addressing racism. But there's other ways of thinking about race and addressing racism. Like my academic background is in post-colonial theory and the black radical tradition. And to me, they are far more generative ways of thinking about race and racism. But those ideas are, are largely absent from the kind of liberal mainstreaming anti-racist narrative which I think inadvertently reinforces the very categories, the very racial categories that we need to be trying to unravel.
I actually felt a sense of responsibility, yeah, in also introducing other theorists. I mean, it doesn't have to be anti-racist books of the last few years. Like, we can draw on Cornel West, we can draw on Fred Moten, we can draw on these radical black scholars who have spent years coming up with the most expansive and liberatory theory. And because I've been studying this stuff for years, I felt... I wanted to share some of those other sources with people. Something that you explain in the essay, and as I said earlier, I think kind of underpins quite a lot of what you then go on to write about, is the fact that race is a social construct. It's not a natural biological like category or, or reality, which is something that I agree with and it's something I talked about in Whites. But I really wonder, and I put the question to you, how useful that distinction is when the reality is whether or not it's a construct, that construct still has very damning real-world consequences for people who find themselves on the wrong side of it. And sometimes acknowledging that kind of fallacy feels like it's of little comfort. Like race might be a social construct, but George Floyd is still dead. And I think you referenced David Rodiger in your essay, and I know he wrote something, I can't remember which book it was, but there's this sentence I have kind of written in my notes where he says, race is thus both unreal and a seeming reality. And I personally hesitate to lean too heavily on the argument of race being a social construct as a result. So I'd really love you to explain how you think recognition of that fact, which, as I said, I think is one of the key themes underpinning your entire essay, is crucial to dismantling racism. So the consequences of race are really fucking real. You know, they determine, as I keep coming back to in the book, they determine who has access to opportunity and who is denied opportunity. They determine so many things about the circumstances and opportunities of one's life, you know, and the very real material realities and conditions of people's lives. That's real. However, when the idea of the white race and the black race was first introduced and disseminated amongst people who didn't have this concept, seeing the world or seeing themselves like this, it was created to enshrine, central to its construction, was this notion of the superiority of the alleged superiority of those who would now be racialized as white and the alleged inferiority of those who would now be racialized as black. And the kind of primary motive in that was to justify the enslavement of millions of Africans and people of African descent the economies of basically the modern world were becoming increasingly dependent on. So to justify that labour, we needed this kind of narrative of racial difference. And also, which I find so fascinating, to shut down the solidarities that were emerging between, you know, indentured Irish labourers and enslaved Africans and indentured English labourers and enslaved Africans who originally kind of often saw their common enemy as the English and sometimes Scottish landlords who exploited their labour. One of the things that whiteness did was to shut down that class solidarity that existed amongst the enslaved and the indentured labourers and for the indentured labourers to see their alliances as more in alignment with other people like them, other quote-unquote white people. Before this invention of race, which we first see mentioned in slave codes in colonial Barbados and then Jamaica and Virginia across the Caribbean and, and throughout the Americas, the reality that people have different complexions and different features and different hair textures, that hasn't been invented. People do have differences in their appearance in that way. But before the invention of race, that isn't seen as having any intrinsic meaning. 
it's not read as racialized difference, you know? So I think that's where the confusion, when people think that race is real, it's not just because of the concrete consequences, you know, of processes of racialization, but then it's also like the physical difference we see, because that's also real. But the meaning that is attached to that is very different in a racialized world than it is in a non-racialized world. So I think if we're going to be talking about race, one of the reasons that I think it's so key to know that history is it actually prevents this perennial back and forth that these conversations always get trapped in where you have it's supposed to be debate it's not debate it will be one person insisting that something that was racist isn't racist and then the other side being well it was racist and then there's this kind of back and forth of denial you know it's very frustrating trying to prove that yes it was racist and then and then there's this shock oh but it couldn't possibly be racist we are not racist because racism is seen as like this anomaly rather than a very just everyday reality that has just become completely normalized and that race was invented in order to normalize race was invented to justify racism so if we know that history we know that central to the construction of whiteness was this enshrined idea of superiority. With that, we can stop this back and forth about whether or not things are racist. Of course there's racism because that's what race was invented to do. So I think it's crucial that we know that history. So when you have the indentured Irish laborers in Barbados in the 17th century, race as we understand it, you know, hasn't really been invented yet. So that's why you see these moments of solidarity. But when you get to the 1840s and afterwards, when the Irish are coming to the States in huge numbers, and they're not just coming in this kind of like, oh, we're just emigrating. They're coming because there's an engineered famine in the country that decimates half of Ireland's population. Like Ireland's population halves because of a famine that's been engineered by the English. So they're not coming in kind of like a neutral way. But by the time they come, the idea of a black race and a white race is deeply entrenched. So there's a barrier to those solidarities ever emerging. But the Irish in America and black Americans at first often are in similar conditions and live close to each other. But the Irish in America very quickly seek to distinguish themselves from black people. And many are committed anti-abolitionists because they don't want black freedom because they see it as competition for labor. So we go back to, you know, capitalism, but they see a free black population as people that will be directly in competition with them for labor. And then they also, there's a period in American history where new immigrants are looked upon with suspicion. So with the kind of like wasp English Protestant class in America who are powerful, who are the elite, they're like, oh, these Irish are going to bring their kind of prejudices against the English and against colonialism, like with them to Ireland. And that's going to make them see some sort of similarity, probably like with other oppressed people, with enslaved people, for instance. So in order to combat that suspicion that they're being held in, that they're going to have, you know, kind of anti-nativist sentiments that they're bringing from their home countries, they also kind of align themselves with what is an American institution, which is chattel slavery. So where you would expect to see that identification of, you know, a shared history, oppression by English colonialism and oppression as being like an enslaved person, it doesn't emerge. 
So yeah, as somebody who is both of Irish and West African Nigerian ancestry, the, the history is like fascinating to me because I'm like, oh, it's like, it's literally like both sides of my heritage that were, if you go back to Barbados, race is invented and it's invented the people that are there where all this happens are Irish and people that come from what is West Africa. Obviously the countries that we have today, like Ghana and Nigeria, don't exist in the 17th century because they haven't been invented by the British yet, but from that part of the world. Yeah, totally. Something that I really want to get into is social media and social media activism. (laughs) And by get into, I don't mean get into as like a line of profession, I mean discuss. Because (laughs) again, I sense from the book and I think from conversations you and I have had before is that I mean, I personally found a lot of the social media activity that happened last summer after George Floyd was murdered very problematic. And I'd love to get you I know problematic is such a sort of like thin word for it but I don't know what else to call it but I'd love to get your take on and like what you thought of how the discourse unfolded on social media at the height of last summer both like in terms of white people's behavior although I think that's actually already been pretty heavily discussed so I, I don't know that we need to like get very heavily into that but also in terms of black people's responses because I think you had some really interesting stuff to say in the essay about both sides of it. One of the issues I have with social media is that social media tells people what to think, whereas reading of books and theory and stuff, and theory doesn't have to be academic. Again, I go back to the Black Panthers and they had like a six week, I think it was six weeks, course of theory that everybody read before they could join the party. And these weren't people with like economic privilege or anything like that, you know, or or educational privilege. These are very like ordinary, unprivileged people who are kind of like joining the party, you know, just working class black people. They recognize the necessity of people being able to grapple with and understand and reckon like with these concepts and ideas. And social media doesn't do that. It doesn't give us the critical thinking skills that we need to ask the right questions and to see when we're being manipulated. What it does instead is it just tells us what to think, you know. Mm. I just feel that social media can be a really powerful tool for the beginning of being introduced to ideas and materials and stuff, but it can only ever be the tip of the iceberg. And if the information sharing stops at the stage of information sharing and doesn't really become knowledge production, which is not really possible on social media, then what we end up having is something I talk about in the book. We have the names of people who are like incredibly, well, everyone from like grassroots activists to intellectuals and many people that are like both as well. These very radical people, black people from the past, and we kind of know their names and we have maybe some quotes from them. But their ideas of what they've been saying rather often becomes untethered from the generative and reflexive, by reflexive, you know, I talk about the Combahee Collective, the group of black socialist lesbian women, including Audre Lorde, who coined the phrase identity politics. And, you know, when they are talking about identity politics, they acknowledge that they have to be continually reflexive, considering and challenging themselves, as opposed to articulations we see of identity politics now, where certain intersections of identity then become, become... It becomes quite reductive, I think. And I mean, for lack of a better word, quite black and white, (laughs) like pun not intended, but you know. Exactly. And if you occupy certain spaces, then 
there can be no critique of what you're saying. And that was never what any of the people who came up with these ideas were saying. They were really about the collective and they were really about transformational change. Their language has been captured by people that are Sometimes just out for themselves, I'll be honest. (laughs) I mean, what you're saying now has brought me onto something that I don't know whether you mentioned this in the essay or whether I've heard you talk about it before, but it's, you know, an idea that's proliferated over the past, I mean, it's not just been the past year, but increasingly so over the past year, is that it's possible to enact reparations, which I do believe in, but that it's possible to enact reparations on an individual basis. So just like white people giving money to random individual black people, which is an idea that I just find opportunistic and sensitive for all sorts of reasons. And I didn't get the impression from reading your essay that you are a fan of that either. But I think it'd be really good to explain for any kind of white people listening why that doesn't work. Because there were lots of crowdfunders that sprung up last summer and some of them, I think, you know, went to causes that are really brilliant. Donate to a bail fund, which is going to help with protesters, legal fees and that sort of thing. But there are other examples, maybe perhaps social media influencers who have literally just been collecting cash for themselves and labeling it reparations. And I think I'd love you to kind of explain why that just isn't a thing, why that just doesn't work. There's different definitions of reparations. If you look at the Caribbean islands organizing and calls for reparations, it's not individual cash payouts. It's things like, you know, investing in the heritage sector acknowledging the history of the relations you know between Britain and the Caribbean islands. Is that a structural and like policy level? Exactly it's things like free trade you know creating an environment where the continued exploitation of these countries the Caribbean is stolen land that was built up by the labour of stolen Africans and their descendants to enrich European and white people in the Caribbean and the Americas and Western economies. So it's about acknowledging that historic and ongoing theft and on a structural level, making reparations for it. I think in the Black American context, I think I've seen some claims I don't know as much about the specifics of reparations in that context. I think some of the claims for reparations do, and I might be wrong, but as far as I'm aware, do look at cash for people who are descendants of slaves because of the continued intergenerational and deeply structural inequality that black Americans whose unremunerated labor was used to build that country, the deep structural inequalities they continue to experience, you know, after having been there for almost 500 years. But also there's the distinction between descendants, like not every black person is the descendant of slaves. And I think that is really key to acknowledge as well. So the conversations that I've seen about reparations, even where they do talk about cash, it would be also like, you know, kind of cash given out at a, I guess, like a federal or like a state level, not giving it to individual people. It's for people who are the descendants of slaves and have been, you know, kind of immediately impact, whose actual ancestors, whose great-great-grandparents were worked to death often and unremunerated for it. So I just feel that payments to individual people in the UK who are not the descendants of slaves is just not reparations, you know, it's just something else. Mm. When you kind of talk about the American context and perhaps cash being given to descendants of slaves at a more federal level, that I also agree with. 
I think for me, what I was really seeing that I found really troubling, which I'm still seeing, is, you know, just people on Twitter or, like, social media influencers just being like, I'm black, give me money, which, (laughs) you know, I'm not going to name any names, but I think it just really doesn't help us as a collective for people to be duped into thinking that, that their money is going to a good cause. It's almost like, um, I can't remember what it was in like the medieval times where like rich people would just go to the church and just kind of buy like forgiveness for their sins. Oh, I can't yeah, remember what the actual yeah, phrase yeah. It's I like a sin swallow or something like that. But essentially, if you were rich, you could buy forgiveness for your sins at the church, which obviously was the church's way of trying to like monetize itself. I don't know. But like, I feel like it then becomes that where if a white person is given 50 quid last week to an unnamed social media influencer, they feel like, great, I've done my good thing, my bit for dismantling racism this week or this month or whatever. And it just gives such a misleading idea of progress. So I I just kind of wanted to talk about that. But moving on, because we have so much to cover in this episode, I think quite a major point of disagreement between, I think, our thinking or between our essays. And and the reason I kind of keep putting our essays together, even though they're, they're really quite different in terms of content and in terms of complexity, is because they've both kind of, I think been written and been published in like similar times and I think quite a major point of disagreement is around what white people should do next and what we should expect for them like the kind of collective we so again from reading the essay I get the impression that you're not that invested or a fan of you know expecting people to quote unquote renounce their privilege and kind of disagree with the idea of transferring privilege for the valid reason, I think that it's quite difficult to conceptualize how that's actually done how we determine who has more or less privilege when you start factoring things like class and geographic location and something that you rightly said which I agree with that telling people that their lives have to get worse to achieve racial equality isn't an effective motivator and I agree it's not an effective motivator for racial equality but I still think that it is the case but I'd love you to explain why you don't see those as potential solutions and obviously we will talk about what you think the solutions are a bit later on. Because I don't think these are things that can happen on an interpersonal level. It's all kind of going back to the individual and the good individual. And I have a a section, like one of the, out of, I don't know how many sections there are, I think eight or something. One of them is redistributing resources. So to me, there needs to be a more equal distribution of resources. And that's what needs to happen rather than a fetishization of interpersonal privilege. It's not that I don't believe that it should be a transfer. I think I said there should be a redistribution of, of resources. Inequality should be addressed. But in the privilege arena at the moment, it's on an individual level and there's no clear means of transferal. So I don't see how it can be successful. It's also like, what's the definition? Because if the definition of white privilege is having the privilege to not think about race, like not not having to be racialized and not having to be discriminated against because of your race. So the fact that you can, you know, experience poverty or you can experience like other inequalities, but you have the privilege, quote unquote, of not experiencing race also not being one of the things that's working against you. That's very different to an economic privilege. And all the transferals seem to be versed on an economic transferal. But that's a different definition. So I think that's also an issue as well. Like people use phrases and words and terms in very different ways. And there's not kind of consensus. So I have a white mother. She can't transfer to me her experience of being unracialized. 
And if the white privilege is that experience of being unracialized, which I've seen of race not being one of the things that is working against you, how can a person racialized as white transfer that to a person racialized as black or as not white? Like, what are the steps? Yeah, I get that. I mean, I think that is maybe one definition of white privilege. I think I do think about it more just in terms of like I kind of get what you're getting at, the kind of like spiritual and emotional and like psychological burdens of or lack thereof of either being racialized as white or racialized as black, but And not I being th- criminalized, things like that. You know, like lots of <laughs> there's yeah. lots of material ones as well. Generally my politics align with thinking about the structural as opposed to purely just the individual and like if you kind of overlaid that analysis like feminism for instance like there are definitely parallels with certain types of neoliberal feminism where the aim is just to insert women at the top of patriarchal structures rather than dismantling them entirely and it's all about individual gain as opposed to collective and so I do agree with you on that but I think there is a huge amount of personal individual and interpersonal responsibility that gets lost when we focus on structures because at the end of the day structures and systems Like, what are they made up of if not individual human decisions? People talk about, like, structural racism and institutional racism. I'm like, yes, when we talk about how individual racism kind of aggregates and becomes a system, it becomes something more than that. But, like, these things aren't generated by a machine. They don't arise from the natural atmosphere. Like, they are created by individual actions and individual attitudes of hundreds of thousands of millions of people. And so... Like for me, I do still find a lot of value in talking about what individual white people can do on a day-to-day or month-to-month level. And it doesn't always have to be stuff like, look, I'm not saying PayPal me £100 a day. If anyone's <laughs> listening and they want to, I would not reject that. But it's You're going to drop your PayPal address. I'm going to put my email address in the show notes just in case anyone wants to do that. But And you do go on to say this later on in the essay. For instance, if we had a progressive political party that had reparations like really kind of well thought out reparations policy as part of one of its key policies then I would expect on an individual level white people to vote for that party and that for me is an individual action that amounts up to more of a structural change I don't want to let white people off the hook by focusing on the structural because it's so intangible I have two responses to that so first of all I would say that Race actually started as like a set of laws. So until the 1960s, like in America, these are like divisions that are enshrined in the law. You know, like there's Jim Crow, there's redlining. These are actually not just individual actors, but it's codified in law. And then the idea is spread and people see the consequences of the fact that like race is codified in law and how well that works for some people and how very very badly it works for others so that's why I think again like it's so important to know the history like it's not just what white people think about black people this is stuff that is backed up by fucking like legislation so that's the first thing and then the second thing this is to me what one of the problems is with the current framing is that while there will be some white people some people racialized as white let me say who are very responsive to allyship and responsive to hearing about their privilege and want to like transfer it in some way they're the minority 
they're definitely the minority because if they weren't the minority, the world would look very, very different. So I think we have to come up with a more, okay, so first of all, there are people that are just, you know, like committed racists. They're like kind of a lost cause. So I'm not saying you have to bring everybody on board, but I feel like we have to bring up on board more people than we are currently doing. And I think what is required to do that is... So the idea of whiteness was codified into law and it was spread through people seeing those laws, seeing how well it was playing out for them, you know, indentured laborers and enslaved people who had worked side by side with each other with this introduction of race. The ones who became racialized as white now had the power of life and death over the ones who were racialized as black. And, you know, a black person couldn't give evidence against a white person. So the white person could do anything they wanted to a black person, you know. So even though a lot of those white people like still might have been poor compared to the other white people, they had this other group of people that they had like absolute power over, okay. So there were very real incentives to popularize the idea of whiteness. So does there not have to be incentives to challenge racism? And I don't think the privilege discourse connects with enough people. I think actually, well, one, I reference Barbara Fields quite a lot in the book. She's a Southern Black American academic at Columbia University. And she says... Barbara Fields is insistent on reminding us that attacking white privilege will never build the necessary coalitions. She goes further, stating that white working people, Hannah Pfizer, for example, a white woman that was killed by the police in, in America last year, an example I talk about in the book, are not privileged. They are struggling and suffering in the more of a callous trickle-up society whose obscene levels of inequality the pandemic is likely to increase. The recent decline in life expectancy among white Americans, which economists Anne Case and Angus Deaton attribute to deaths of despair, is a case in point. The rhetoric of white privilege mocks the problem while alienating people who might be persuaded. End quote. Well, that's Barbara feels, not me, but to me, it feels like if there are loads of white people who are also exploited or having their life opportunities diminished by the ravages of capitalism, doesn't it make sense to try and like look at points of connection between our struggles? Because there's loads of them as well and bring more people on board and create a mass movement. See, that's the thing. If the Black Panthers can do it in the 1960s, if the Black Panthers can work with white working class Southerners who use the Confederate flag, that despicable symbol of the slave-owning South. So Fred Hampton creates this rainbow coalition between the Black Panthers, the Puerto Rican young lords, and the young patriots, who are these white Southern working class group. Basically, the young patriots obviously don't experience racism, but they do experience police brutality, and they do experience like inequality, huge inequality. So they form a rainbow coalition where all of those groups are working together because that triples the numbers. If people can create those coalitions in those circumstances, like when segregation is being dismantled in America, people who are descendants of slaves, I think we can create coalitions here and now as well, you know? Totally. And I think that really kind of nicely brings us on to what it is, you know, I said that we were going to talk about what you do propose as a solution instead of talking about like transfers of privilege and, and that sort of thing is a key part of your argument. And you introduced it quite early on is that you are more interested in coalition building and the idea that focusing on collective liberation, i.e. not just that of black people, 
is the way forward because the same and I'm, I'm actually going to explain the Hannah Pfizer example to people who haven't necessarily heard that story oh, please do it Thank really you. made quite an impression on me but um oh, I'm she's so sad. yeah because I, I hadn't heard the story before but the stat that came out of it did seem quite familiar but if I remember it correctly she is a white woman who I think possibly working class but she's a white woman in yeah the working US. class which is key yeah who was shot and killed by a police officer I'm not entirely sure when I think it was last year and yeah 2020 which brought out the stat that four out of 10 police gun deaths in the US happened to white people. And then you brought in this really brilliant quote. I don't know whether it's your wording or someone else's, but this shit is killing you too, which is that police brutality is killing a lot of white people as well as black people. And so maybe the aim isn't so much about dismantling racism, even though that is what we want to do, but dismantling police brutality against everyone. Because by virtue, that will also dismantle police brutality against black people and then you kind of apply that to all the different systems of oppression that are oppressing maybe black people more heavily Mm -hmm. but are also oppressing so-called privileged white people is that a kind of accurate-ish summary of what some of what you were saying yeah no 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 no, that there are there are parallels between that and what I say I do make a point of saying that I can't remember how exactly how I explain it but you can't just have race blind policies and be like, oh, that will just help. That will just help everyone because often racialized people, black people still end up like not benefiting from those policies. So there do need to be targeted policies, you know, reparations, you know, would be a targeted policy. There do need to be targeted policies and there do need to be ones that account for race specifically. But one of the things I say in the book is that when you think about the fact that the same forces that disregard black lives are the same forces that disregard women are the same forces that disregard indigenous people are the same forces that disregard the poor are the same forces that disregard the earth itself right so there are different causes but the source of the kind of disregard and the oppression and the exploitation is the same group of people it's always kind of been so if people can identify that and through their shared but different struggles work together in these kind of coalitions it's going to be a lot more powerful than the atomized approaches that seem to characterize a lot of activism today those atomized approaches are exactly what the status quo wants to encourage solidarity is subversive people think that falling back along the lines that were invented to divide us in the first place is what's subversive when I was younger, I felt very differently to how I feel now. But what I've come to realise, and I'm certain on, is that it's solidarity that's subversive. That's what the status quo doesn't want. Mm. I feel like that's actually a really good note to end on. I mean, your essay has definitely given me an enormous amount of food for thought. I think I'm going to be rereading it several times. But <laughs> I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. And that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be back next week with another fantastic guest. So do make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then I think you'll really enjoy my next book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is a blend of memoir and cultural commentary all about, you guessed it, money, and which you can pre-order now using the link in my show notes. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Otegiwagba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And please do leave a positive review or rating for the podcast if you're so inclined, as it really does help give the show a boost.